0: Book Club Podcast. This is episode 35 of our Penguin Little Black Classics review set, where we are slowly but surely working our way through 80 world literature classics that Penguin collected and put into small bound. Books. They're about 50 pages. If this is your first episode with us, uh, you're jumping right in the middle. I applaud your bravery, Um, but if you're a returning listener, welcome back to episode 35. We are here today with a romantic author, the capital R kind, an English author who was part of the romanticism movement in England and wrote during the 1700s and early 1800s, and it is Samuel Taylor Coleridge, an author I'm pretty sure I was unfamiliar with, though... I think like most people who study literature pretty far into school you encounter romanticism you know in many forms um and so maybe I had encountered him before but not that I could remember we covered an author earlier John Keats who I think is the closest comparison to Coleridge and I was I was reading this poetry collection that Penguin has that is the first author that came to mind if you listen to that episode you'll know that Ryan and I both detested uh or well Gosh, how strong of a verb should I use? Well, we disliked it anyway. I don't know if we detested it. But we strongly disliked and did not have a positive reaction to Keats. Um, Coleridge will be an interesting comparison point just because the language and the form is very similar. But there are some crucial contrasts as well, um, which I'll get into in the review here. I think um, what I've been trying to do with these solo pods when I'm uh, by myself doing book reviews is trying to change up the form every time, just do something a little bit different and tweak things in the review. And today what I'm going to be doing is basically a rhetorical analysis, think uh, high school style or maybe if you're being more generous to me, college style, of one of the poems that are in this collection. There are about 20 of them and I'm just going to be breaking down one of the poems. I think. The reason for this, or the reason I think this will be best, is pretty simple. These are dense poems, and I think to give you the best sense of whether or not you'd want to pursue reading some Coleridge would be just to dive in deep and say this is what it will be like to read it, this is what the language is like, and this is how approachable it will be. So, if you're a super long-time listener of our show, you might know that we used to do book club episodes. Um, That was before we started the Penguin journey we're on. But those book club episodes were total breakdowns. They were analytical. They weren't just review and recommend. They were, you know, more thoughtful considerations of the entire work. And this will feel probably more like that. It's going to be, you know, of the poem or in the poem I've selected... I'm going to be looking through all of the elements that I can think of that that truly matter. I'll be analyzing different things, the language, the form, stuff like that. And so it might remind you of that sort of style of book review. Um, And I, again, think that in this kind of poetry, it almost demands it. And I think it'll just be better for you, the listener, to know, you know, whether Coleridge would be something that would intrigue you or would put you right to sleep. I think both are equally possible, depending on your mindset going in. At the end of the episode, I will still do a review, a traditional, you know, numbered review, and I'll kind of give a summation of what I think of the collection here and what I think of Coleridge. But I think, again, doing a deep dive is going to be better just all around. Before we begin, then, a couple of just logistical things. I would highly recommend you read the poem... Before we start, um, it would, you know, if you did a, a quick, almost skim kind of read, I'm sure it would take under 10 minutes to read it. it. It's an eight stanza poem, and some are a little longer, but we're not talking about a huge investment of time. And I think just based on the kind of discussion I'm about to have, that would probably be best. It would make the most sense, but I'll try and make the points clear even if you have not read it. You can easily Google the title though. So the title of this collection is taken from a poem. Um, the title is Well, They Are Gone. And Here Must I Remain. Kind of an intriguing title. I liked it. Um, That is not the poem or from the poem that I chose to read, though. The poem that I chose is called Fears in Solitude. Um, Kind of a grim title, and we'll see if that pays off thematically in the actual context of the poem itself. Um, So again, Fears in Solitude is the name of the poem. You can find it online. I googled the name and found it at poemhunter.com, a website that I frequently use when I was a teacher as well. I did not check the um, not, not that it would need to be translated, but I didn't check to see if the language lined up perfectly. I just glanced at a couple of the lines and phrases and it seemed fine. It seemed accurate. So again, Fears and Solitude is the name of the Coleridge poem. You can find it on Poem Hunter and if you're going to commit to listening all the way through this one, why not give that a 10 minute listen and then come back, or 10 minute read rather, and then come back and give us a listen. With all that said, let's Delay no longer, and get right to the romantic poetry of Coleridge. So first, I'll start with some basics. It's an eight stanza poem, and the length of those or the lengths of those stanzas are uh, various, so there's no consistency to that. Nor is there end rhyming consistency. That's not something that he relies on in this style, which, um, again, if you listen to the Keats, that's one thing that just really breaks me down if I have to read a long-form poem, if it has rhyming at the end lines. I just, my mind just starts to slowly melt. I I do not enjoy reading poetry like that. Um, And so this does not have that tick to it, which, you know, I appreciated right away. It has a lot of hallmarks of Romanticism. I had to bust open the Penguin and Oxford Literary Dictionaries to refresh and just remind myself of some of the traits. I'm going to take the following quote just directly from Penguin's Dictionary, and they categorize the Romantic movement in England or in Europe uh, with a couple of key descriptors that I'm going to, again, quickly run through. One of them is that there is an A, increasing interest in nature and in the natural, primitive, and uncivilized way of life which definitely is consistent throughout this. There's a lot of marveling at nature and a lot of interpreting symbolic beauty and sort of relating that to his own human experience. So that, we can check that box off. There will be B, a growing interest in scenery, especially in the more untamed and disorderly manifestations. Also true. I think he spends... You know, the narrator of the poem, if we interpret it to be him, spends time in a hill or I think maybe in a grove at some point in this poem, and they're sort of observing what England uh, looks like and the beauty or lack of beauty it might have. There's also C, an association of human moods with the moods of nature, and thus a subjective feeling for it and interpretation of it. Again, also true, covered that. There is also D, a considerable emphasis on natural religion, extremely potent here. he It's a Christian poem through and through explicitly, too, not even inferentially. And so I'm not sure how much of the rest of Romanticism was tied up in Christianity. According to, again, the Penguin Literary Dictionary, a lot of it was. Uh, many critics have called it an actual Christian movement or a religious movement to a degree. That certainly will come through when I start talking about this. And then G, a tendency to exalt the individual and his needs, an emphasis on the need for a freer and more personal expression. And so I think that'll come up too, though this has some societal questions and implications in this poem as well. So what's the poem about then? What does it begin with? What does it end with? What's the situation? Well, the situation of this poem is that he is afraid, the narrator, again, who I think we can pretty safely interpret to be Coleridge himself is afraid of an invasion of Britain or England, or he's afraid of a war coming to the English shores. And so the poem is a lot of him allaying his kind of fears and describing the concerns he has about potentially going to war. The first stanza, as you read it or if you read it, it will immediately strike you as just a total bombardment, to borrow some war language, of nature imagery and language. It, It will essentially envelop you in this beautiful scene and again, when we think about the definition of romanticism that was just given, it's certainly hitting that purpose. It's very subjective, it's very engrossing, and it's, it's almost calming, which I think plays up with sort of a, as a juxtaposition or contrast in stanza two. A couple of quotes in stanza one jump out to me. It's got this universality about it when he says, Oh, it is a quiet spirit-healing nook, which all methinks thinks would love. And there's also this recurring lark, uh, a bird that comes up later in the poem too, And of that lark, he says, Here he might lie on fern or withered heath, while from the singing lark that sings unseen, the minstrelsy that solitude loves best, and from the sun and from the breezy air, sweet influences trembled over his frame. The sincerity there and the sort of... I I, I pictured this um, poet or narrator just constantly trembling with with his emotions, just surely overwhelmed by the beauty of nature and his own reflections. And I think... Though that might be a bit of an exaggerative image to have in mind, some of the language does come across that way, and so the trembling over the frame, um, I'm interpreting you know, pretty pretty literally. Um, and though you know the lark, I guess, might also be trembling. And so I think the purpose of stanza one, or the, the structural intent of it, seems to me to be just to set up such, a, again, a jarring contrast when you jump into stanza two, which begins with the lines, My God, it is a melancholy thing for such a man who would full fain preserve his soul in calmness, and yet perforce must feel for all his human brethren, oh my God. These kind of calls out, almost chants... To, to God for salvation or for help or assistance, again, Mark It Immediately as a religious poem, and then specifically you can tell it's a Christian one later. There's references to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and forgiveness of sins and all that, and I think it also just sort of undercuts the groundwork laid in stanza one, though he will revisit nature later, and it becomes it sort of has a deeper meaning, I think. This immediately presents the poem as, you know, an interesting work at the very least. Again, you might not enjoy reading it. You might not like the experience and the language, but at least it it takes an idea and then tries to present a complication to that idea pretty quickly, which I appreciate. It's, you know, one of the basic literary drives that can keep something interesting. To return, though, to just this idea of nature and this almost motif of nature in the poem, as I... I tried to outline at the beginning, romanticism treated with nature in a pretty crucial way. is an essential aspect of analyzing those texts, but I think the nature in this is is foundational. And to me, it is a salvation aspect. It's a kind of a he's crying out to it for help. He sees kind of the beauty and savior aspect of nature. It it feels like an angelic, and that's a quote um, aspect in the poem. At some point, he talks about how on page 5- 14. Quote, boys and girls and women that would groan to see a child plough an insect's leg all read of war, the best amusement for our morning meal. And not only does that have a very, I think, pretty clear irony to it, just the implication or the drawing in of that image with the insect is showing that you, you can't defile nature, that the defilement of nature can be made equivalent to or sort of associated with other human acts of just of murder and and sort of immoral behavior going to war and this is consistent throughout again the nature imagery kind of underscores this the whole way perhaps fittingly the ending also draws upon a lot of nature imagery and it sort of then stands as a bookend right the beginning has a lot of nature imagery you're welcomed into the poem that way and then you exit that way too the ending begins by saying but now the gentle dewfall sends abroad the fruit-like perfume of the golden firs." The light has left the summit of the hill, though still a sunny gleam lies beautiful aslant in the ivied beacon. Just a, you know, a pretty gorgeous image by itself. I like the ivied beacon description. That feels very English castle or very European castle-like to me. Maybe that's my own bias showing up, um, but I think it's it's sort of a dis, um, almost a reascent. You know, if we if we start at this place of this calm, sort of. Sensational or saved spot in nature and then we just have to descend throughout most of the poem into these bleak descriptions of war And we have these harsh contrasts It's fitting again then for us to kind of peek our heads up again at the end and for Coleridge to draw us back and sort of remind us of the saving grace of nature and sort of the peace that it can provide and the uh, warmth I don't know basic connection that it can provide to us if you just examine the last line too It says, And grateful that by nature's quietness and solitary musings, all my heart is softened and made worthy to indulge love and the thoughts that yearn for humankind. Which is probably the clearest message of them all. And so, of course, it's fitting that it's the final lines, but it is, again, relying relying upon nature to be a sort of salve for human emotions or a salve for human destruction, things that can tear us apart, can be mended with nature. Certainly a Romantic, again, capital R, Literary Movement Romantic notion, uh, and fits in well with the the description that Penguin provided in their literary dictionary. And so maybe it's my bias from having read the Inferno um, sections of that through Penguin's collection, but it did remind me of that sort of descent-ascent aspect where it's you begin one place and then you have to go down into something very literal and then come up. I think structurally this poem sort of reads that way, where it's, it's as if the narrator, the author, is submerging himself in something nasty to in order to then pull himself back up at the end and remind us uh, what is beautiful or what is right in his interpretation. Though this all, of course, begs the question, what are in the middle stanzas? There's six stanzas in the middle. That's the bulk of the poem by far. And there's definitely some nature imagery that weaves its way throughout. I'll leave that to you guys to analyze more deeply than I did. But to me, the middle section then is sort of his, as close as you'll get to a sort of speech or maybe even sort of a lesson, it's kind of didactic sounding about war and the uselessness of it and that he sort of condemns it throughout. Um, I honestly didn't even do enough research, and you know, if you listen to us, I'll do some light research, but nothing too heavy. Uh, I'm not sure which war he was concerned about. If it was one of them with France or some other European affair, I don't even know. But it's clear that Britain was on the edge of going to war when he wrote this or constructed it. But it's an event that he is deeply concerned with. He calls it wretched at different points. He says that it's against all of humanity. He describes the enemies of Britain as this also the sons of God, which, you know, is a an empathetic statement, but deeply rooted, again, in, in Christian religion. And so, you know, in terms of morality of this poem, I, I don't know how far it would go for you if you yourself are not you know, a believer in a monotheistic religion, especially Christianity. But that certainly is something he comes back to is this sort of idea of equality between peoples because they're all Christians and they're they're, they're all beloved, you know, under the eyes of God. He, to his credit, I I think, in terms of the honesty and authenticity of the poem, lays the blame, not exclusively at Britain's feet, but largely or mostly. There's a line on page 12. He says, we have offended, oh, my countrymen, we've offended very grievously and been most tyrannous which I I think we would say tyrannical now. But anyway, from east to west, a groan of accusation pierces heaven. Uh, And in his eyes or in his morality, I think that would be an incredibly harsh accusation to draw the ire of God or draw the ire of heaven because of how gross your misdeeds and your behaviors and policies in this case have been. So pretty severe stuff right away in the poem. He's definitely worried about, quote, his brethren or our brethren and their, the way they're polluting or influencing the world and the world's events. I do think for me, and this is more of a personal note than a you know rhetorical breakdown, but I do think some of the calls to god or some of the laments that involve like calling to heaven for help and things do sort of read as the most awkward i mean it's the parts in the poem that get the most exclamation points so if you're reading it with that sort of interpretation or just interpreting it that literally it just comes off as the moments when it's the most shrieking and desperate in a way and i just don't think those are the most effective or the most well-written and so i think you know, while it's pretty clear and gets the message through, I don't know if rhetorically it was my favorite part to read. You know, he begins a, a stanza uh, with, Spar yet a while, Father and God, oh, spare us yet a while. And I think, again, depending on your own beliefs, that may ring true or may give you some sort of deep resonance or something that has some kind of deep resonance in you. But for me, that does very little. Um, there were other much more insightful moments. And I think for me, those moments are his insights into warfare and the sort of destructive nature of it in multiple ways, not just the literal way. Um, And then also some insights about how humans who are not in wars perceive them and talk about them and treat with them. This is pretty remarkably insightful stuff, I think, in some of his best writing throughout the poem. One phrase that struck me just immediately was how when you're sort of reading correspondence of war, it says that they're you know enjoying the, in the while they're like eating breakfast, they're enjoying the updates in the newspapers, and it says there's technical victories and defeats and all our dainty terms for fratricide, terms which we trundle smoothly over our tongues like mere abstractions, empty sounds to which we join no feeling and attach no form. I think dainty terms for fratricide is in itself just a a perfect. Like critique of juxtaposition and language there. It's such a setup and then push down with the, you know, dainty fratricide is like, I don't know, it's such an oxymoron I never thought I'd encounter. And the trundle smoothly over our tongues is, is itself kind of a contradiction. And I think those lines are just, I don't know, just perfectly stated. It's sort of displays the jumbling nature of war correspondence. There's almost no language to do it justice. And so you're just left describing these, quote, like bloody deeds in very abstract ways or in ways that just feel forced or just removed, and you'll never really capture it. This, I think, thematically, too, is one of his better or more interesting concerns in the poem, which is just what do you do with the generations who have never been at war or what do you do with people who will never themselves see combat or see conflict which, by the way, I, I don't know if this undoes the entire poem, but I'm assuming Coleridge was that way, too. I, I don't know if he ever fought in a war. Again, something I didn't Google. Based on this narrative, um, I would hope that he had seen something, some kind of combat, since this is such a concern of his throughout. But it's entirely possible, even likely, that he didn't serve either in, in a military. So who knows what his own experiences were. But he has another page of condemnation along those lines where he's just concerned about people who have never like seen a battlefield or seen war. He describes the the fighting as ghastly and then he says he's concerned about people who are like, quote, spectators and not combatants. And I think this point is really well taken. It's something that in a thankful but grim thankful way um, visual the visual media that's developed in the last 100 years right? so photography that's become more prolific, videos this has made it so a modern person can never be ignorant to what the cost of war is now. It would be utterly baffling if somebody thought war was a romantic exciting adventurous thing i think the last again 150 years or so probably starting with world war one like poetry and stories and things but that idea has been deconstructed thoroughly um but in his time they didn't have the benefit of those things and so this strikes me as maybe not a revolutionary poem people have been writing anti-war things for hundreds thousands of years uh, or at least questioning the enterprise of war But this, um, I thought, was a pretty potent version, a pretty strong uh, message. To me, the most potent thing, though, in the entire poem was his beating back against this idea of, and how I would characterize it, would be sort of like a malaise of success or wealth. Britain, at this point, was an incredibly powerful, wealthy country, and, you know, to an extent still is today, a very influential country, but at this point would increase a lot in its power and influence, and so he sort of decries how, when a A country is accumulating such influence, it can tie itself up in institutions and sort of lose its humanity, is again how I would describe it. He describes how all individual dignity and power gets engulfed in courts, committees, institutions, associations, and societies, a vain, speech-mouthing, speech-reporting guild, a one-benefit club for mutual flattery. We have drunk up, demure as at a grace, pollutions from the brimming cup of wealth." And I think there's just a lot to unpack there, but the the sort of rigidness or the institutional non-feeling that gets made through those, through complex, I don't know, machinations like that is, I don't know, really quite a powerful thing to consider and reduces a lot of these abstract things to a, I don't know, more concrete, or I think we can, again, just better picture how people become removed or detached. You know, it's easier to debate a war when you're the fifth chairman on a subcommittee on a thing, on a thing, and it just, and the, the levels of abstraction away from the conflict can become, I don't know, devastating in a, in a sense. He then finishes that line with saying, yet bartering freedom in the poor man's life for gold as in a market, and this is a, this is a criticism that our current sort of military construct is going through too. It's, you know, we have a volunteer military in the United States in 2020, and it's, I think, just blatant to anyone who pays attention that our military is largely made up of people from low-income backgrounds who are seeking just an opportunity. Maybe they wanted, maybe they just needed a purpose, but it could be something like they needed money, they wanted something financially safe, they wanted to do something structured after high school or maybe even after college. And, of course, there's the, the most... I don't know, most clear like service angle too. maybe they want to serve. And that's certainly the the most, that's the easiest reason to praise for obvious reasons. But I think there are so many other ways people go into the military that you'd be really just putting your head in the sand to ignore them. And so this idea of being of bartering your people at a market like coin, treating them like, you know, like a a movable or spendable piece. It's an idea that still feels relevant that there are moves that a country can make and that sort of feel abstract and sort of quote-unquote nation building but that have a real human cost it's always worth asking of course who those humans are that you are expending another uh, devastating image i think in that regard is a critique comes from 16 when he says some be like groaning with restless enmity expect all change from change of constituted power as if a government had been a robe on which our vice and wretchedness were tagged like fancy points and fringes with the robe pulled off at a pleasure. And so to him, and I think to the narrator in this poem, it's not solving this deep moral conundrum of, of a desire for war and a frenzy for war is not something to be just cast off like a robe. It's not something simple that you can dress up and take off. It becomes, you know, more deeply rooted and embedded in the culture, or the civilization, or however you want to phrase that. And it becomes this sort of wicked, cruel thing that is deep, deeply difficult to cast away. You know, on the next page, he calls it mad idolatry. And I guess what you're idolizing there isn't a person, but an idea or a concept, or in this case, almost like a A bloody frenzy, which is a frightening notion. I think the final thought I'll have on this rhetorically is on page 17, which for me is the last page before the poem ends, there's this idea or this notion introduced just slightly that he's kind of a hypocrite in all of this or that he too has some blame. And he says on page 17, there lives nor form nor feeling in my soul and borrowed from my country. And I think the generous way to interpret that is you know, hey Britain, you have endowed me with all this love and these feelings of appreciation for humanity and i and I'm deeply caring and so recognize that and use it, and we can you know not get into this conflict. The other way of course would be to say the other interpretation less generous would be to say everything you've just said was a fraud I mean everything you know who knows if you're saying sincere things, perhaps you're overcome with bloodlust as well, and you just you know want to to fake it or that you are, you, you have no right to critique when you are of the same you know ilk or of the same type. I think I'm going to be, just based on the rest of the poem, a little generous in interpreting that. I think he's just trying to appeal to their better, quote-unquote, characteristics. I think that would be sort of the simplest way to phrase it for him. But it, it does add a, a complicated note just there at the end of the poem, um, which I, I found kind of an intriguing ending. And really, by the end, he's he's implicated so many groups and sort of blame them. He, he does, and I didn't pull this quote, but he does at some point blame Christians, one, ones who basically preach the word lazily, but they don't actually practice it. That's a very complex idea worth another pod for sure. He obviously decries the wealthy, the bureaucracy, the government, um, even to that implication in the quote mothers, you know, who like let their kids pick off the insect legs. It's sort of a, a wide-ranging poem of of condemnation for people who are content with war. To wrap up or put a bow on it, I found it a really fascinating reread. Um, I quite enjoyed analyzing it, breaking it down. I think a couple of things before I send out my final review here on this um, collection by Coleridge, I had to read that poem like five times. Who knows how many, I mean, it's annotated to death. If I put up, maybe I'll put up some pictures of my copy when I post this review, but yeah, I mean, it's when you're reading something this dense and in language that is just unfamiliar to any of us, because we're not living in the Romantic period in England in the 1800s or 1700s, it will demand rereadings from you if you want to extract a lot of um, depth out of it. And if you want it to, to seem kind of potent and powerful, I think if you ex- go into this expecting a one, one pass and I'm just going to think, oh, that was an enjoyable poem, you're picking the wrong genre, you're picking the wrong author. And so I think that's probably the most important point to take away. The other would be that there are uh, rhetorical sort of ticks that can be off-putting. And I, when I was doing the analysis or talking through what I liked about the poem, I did skip a lot of them. You know, there's a lot of interjections of him just saying, oh, oh, England, oh, country, oh, my love. And in that way, it does feel like almost painfully sincere, almost like saccharine at times, I think, to, again, a modern reader who's accustomed to love stories that kind of have those components but never feel so forced or uh, again shrieking I guess is the the word I used earlier I'll use that again I think that can be off-putting too to encounter on sort of a first or second read but once you find the components of the poem and you find the stanzas that have these really dense and, and beautiful sayings I think it can be quite rewarding to read and with that said, I think I'm going to give this a solid two, which to me feels like a huge victory for, for the romantic poets and for Coleridge and for everybody, because I, again, can't overstate how much I disliked Keats, did not connect to it, didn't want to reread to unpack meaning. I just found it grating. This is was, I found such a lovely contrast, and I picked this poem because, one, I thought it had a, many things to unpack and discuss, but then, two, it was lengthier but not too lengthy. Some of the Keats poems were like 30 pages, I think. One of them was 20 or so. This to me hit the sweet spot of what I would like from a poem, you know, multiple pages of thoughtfulness and imagery to to contrast and play with a lot of literary components to think about. But then also doesn't overstates welcome in a sense, and hey, no rhyming, so everybody wins. I don't think, of course, it's a for everyone, so I can't push it up to a three. I know I've mentioned on recent pods that I'm kind of desperate or really reaching for a three these days. Haven't found one, but that's okay. That's just the nature of the rating system. So I can say this is a two, though, which for us means a qualified recommendation. If what I just talked about sounds intriguing to you and you want a bit of a challenge, I would say, then certainly reach for a Coleridge collection. It seems well worth your time. The other poems, again, were sort of hit and miss. It wasn't all exciting or enjoyable. But there were enough poems in the collection for me to say I think this one represents the style, the tone, the complexity. And so if the fears and solitude gripped your attention, then go seek him out. What do we have coming up next week, then? We have a collection of maxims. By, I think it's Goth or Goth. I'm going to have to check the pronunciation. It's a German philosopher and writer, and I guess art critic, but um, I'll have to check the pronunciation on that before we do that podcast. But I'm finished with that and planning and prepping the pod now. Um, I'll leave all the details for that next week so that you come back. And until that time, we will see you between the classics.